Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 15. You know we've been walking through uh, this passage for the last, well, since the beginning of June. We've been walking through the book of Revelation, and we still have another five or so weeks to go as we walk through the rest of this book. Uh, you obviously have your Bibles, and, and maybe you have your Bible journal. We encourage you to bring this with you every single week so you can keep notes of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, if you don't have one, our ushers are making their way down to the front. Just raise your hand. They'll pass one to you. It's the book of Revelation and then a place there where you can keep notes and take notes of what we're talking about today. And so we encourage you to do that. And we'll be in that journal in that book in just a few moments. But before we do that, as we've been doing every week, now understand the point of everything that we've been walking through is to help us better understand and fully understand. And I put quotes around the word fully because we will not fully understand understand what we are talking about until we are standing in the presence of God. There are lots of things that we have been and will and are going to be talking about that we won't really truly get until we get there. That's okay. But so that we can have the best opportunity we can to know what we can know for the time in which we're in, we've been walking through this book and every week we take time to kind of go back and look at where we've been. And so we put up on the screen here this timeline again. I would encourage you, take your phones out, okay? And I'm not saying take your phones out so you can play Candy Crush or something like that. Take your phones out so you can take pictures. Today we're going to have lots of information that's going to be on the screens that you'll be able to take pictures of and go back and reference later. Make notes if you would. But we started in chapter 1 where we got the picture that this was John's vision that he had of Jesus. And Jesus revealed the message of what the days to come are going to look like. We then walked into chapters 2 and 3. And we talked about those, those seven churches, seven actual churches in Asia Minor that took place, that were going through different types of things and different issues and different problems. Matt did an amazing job of walking us through that performance review of the church so we could learn like the things that we deal with today that they dealt with then, that we can help us to recognize what we need to fix and what we need to adjust and what we need to change. We then went into John chapter 4, chapters 4 through 7, and we began walking into the future picture of the book of Revelation. What is to come? And here we saw as the seven seals were opened, and Jesus began laying out for John and for all of us what the rest of time was going to look like, of what the end of the world was going to look like. And we, we walked through those passages there. We got into chapters 8 and through 10, and Walked into the seven trumpets. Charles talked about the idea uh, that was given to us here, the different trumpets of judgment that were given out, the little scroll that John saw. We then walked into chapters 11 and 12 where they started talking about the two witnesses that will uh, be preaching the gospel in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. All the way up to the midpoint of that tribulation period where they would be killed by the Antichrist. And then there will be the bodies laying in the streets. They'll be there for three and a half days. They will ascend into heaven at that point. The entire world will be watching. And then begins the second half of the seven years of tribulation, which will be the great tribulation, which we're going to be talking about in today's message. We then moved on to chapters 13, where we were introduced to a couple of characters, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth, which of course, as you know, is the, uh, the Antichrist, and then also in the false prophet. 
We then moved into chapter 14 where we began seeing this picture of Jesus lining up the the winning team, lining up everybody that was going to come together to to bring the, the end to this world, to bring everything to a conclusion. And then we today are going to be in chapters 15 and 16. We're going to talk about the final bowls of judgment. Now, what we're going to be talking about today is going to take us literally to the end of the great tribulation, to the end of that seven years of tribulation, and to the second return of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. But before we do that, I want to kind of give you a picture of how all of this kind of plays out. Because it seems like, and I hope you've been paying attention because you'll notice it if you have, it seems like lots of the things that we've been talking about are things that, in essence, are, are pictures of like talking about what, what's going to happen. And then the next week we're walking into another passage where it's like, wait a minute, we're back right in the middle of what we were talking about two weeks ago. Now, have you ever watched a TV show where the show starts with a very high energy moment? Sherry and I were just a couple of weeks ago, we were watching this TV show. We don't watch a lot of TV, but what we do is rather than watch what's on TV now, we go back and watch old shows, like shows that were 15, 20, 30 years old. And we go back and, you know, because there's seasons and seasons of them. And we'll go back and we just watch like the entire, you know, 13, 14 year run of the shows. And that's what we do. We go back and we just stream it. We watch it from old. And there was a show, a really funny show. It was on ABC back in the early 2000s. And we're watching this show. And the show started with the main character. It's kind of a comedy cop show. I love comedy cop shows. Uh, I love, my dad always called them shoot 'em up toms. I don't know why he called them that, but I love those kinds of shows. And so... Uh, going back, we're watching the show, and it started with the main character is in this very high-energy scene. The music is really ramped up, and it's right to the point where there's a person who has a gun aimed right at his head, and the trigger is pulled, and you hear the explosion. And all of a sudden, the screen goes black, and it says, 36 hours earlier. Have you ever watched a show like that where it starts at the end, right? And then it kind of walks you back and tells you how you got there. It tells you how you got to that place that you started the show. Well, that's kind of what we've been walking through. Chapter 12 that we talked about a few weeks ago. In chapter 12, we were introduced, if you remember, we were introduced to the woman. Remember the woman and the child, right? The woman was who? See if you're paying attention. Who was the woman? Israel. Very good. Give that person points. You got points. Doesn't do anything for you, but you got points. That's awesome. That's great. Well done. And who was the child? Let's see if you really paid attention. The child, Jesus. Who was the dragon? Satan. Man, you guys are, this is awesome. You guys are paying attention. Very cool. And so we we were talking about that. And that chapter 12 really is kind of an overview. It's kind of a summation of everything that is to come. It talks about how the, 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 the dragon is coming after to destroy the child, to destroy the offspring, which is Israel, right? To destroy the woman and how Jesus uh, protects them, right? Remember we talked about Petra possibly being a place where they would be protected and all of those kinds of things. That was a picture of like the whole of the seven years, right? And so then we've been walking through different parts of the seven years. And so today we're going to walk to the very, very end. We're going to walk right up to the final moment of the seven years tribulation. And then next week, we're going to walk into chapters 18 and or 17 and 18, where we actually kind of take a step back into the midpoint of the tribulation where there's more color. So again, think of it that way. It's not like you know, somebody was messed up when they were writing this or it doesn't make sense. All of this makes sense. It's kind of the picture today. I'm going to give you that really high energy moment at the end. And then... Next Sunday, we're going to start with a black screen that says, 
and 42 months earlier, and then we'll go back. Okay, so everybody understand where we're going? Cool. Now, get your phones out, because I'm going to give you another graphic right now that kind of talks the story of the entirety of the seven years of tribulation. You know we've been talking about walking through different levels of seven. So we have this graphic up here. Now, I'm not going to go through this whole thing because it will take forever, okay? We've spent two months going through everything here. But I love all these pictures. I feel like you're taking pictures of me. Like I'm walking the red carpet, you know? There you go. Okay, so take the pictures here because here we have on the left side the seven seals. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago. The seven seals of judgment, right? That's in the first part of the tribulation period. And then we walked into the seven trumpets. And you'll see those in the second column. The seven trumpets of judgment. And then we began talking about seven characters that are found within the book of Revelation. Now there are others involved, angels and others. But for the most part, these are the seven characters that will actually kind of bring to, to fruition everything that the book of Revelation talks about. We've got the woman, Israel. We've got dra the dragon, Satan. The male child, Christ. We've got the Michael the archangel. The rest of her offspring, that's Israel. We've got the beast of the sea, the antichrist. We've got the false prophet, the beast of the earth. And so we have the seven characters that are there. And then today we're going to walk through the seven bowls. And so you can see in this four sets of seven, remember a couple of weeks ago when Troy was preaching out of chapter 13, I believe it was, and he talked about how seven was the idea, the picture of completeness, remember that? That he talked about how it was the, the, the picture of or the image of completeness. Six was the number of the man, right? Seven is the number of completeness. And so this is the picture we have here of what we've been walking through. And so again, we're not gonna walk through this today, but I wanted you to make sure you got a kind of a, a full picture of all that we've been talking about, how it all kind of plays together. And so today we're going to be on the far end of the, the end part of the seven years of tribulation, jumping into the seven bowls. Okay, so everybody got it? Everybody understand? One last picture? All right. So we're going to move on. And as we move on, we're going to go to chapter 15. And when we move into chapter 15, we come to the point where the time has come. It's page 54 in your Bible journal, if you have that in front of you. The time has come. So everything that has been leading up to the point, we are now at the point where the time has come, where we're all coming to a head. It's coming to, you know, the climax of the story. And what we see in verse 1 of chapter 15, it says this, And then, John writes, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete." For in them, the wrath of God is complete. Now here, John is saying, listen, I, I got another sign. This is a major sign because all through the book of Revelation, we've had picture after picture and sign after sign. But this sign is different. Can somebody tell me, is the verse still up there? Tell me, why is this sign different than all the rest? Can somebody tell me? I'll give you a hint. It's found in the verse. Can anybody tell me why this sign is totally different than everything else we've seen? Okay, I'll give you another hint. It's on the last line. Okay, I'll give you another hint. It's the last word. Now you got it? This sign is different because now in this sign, in this picture, in these bowls that we're about to see that they're bringing forth by the seven angels, that the wrath of God is complete. In other words, this is the final story. This is the final hurrah. This is the last moment. It is finished. And I said that on purpose. 
Because can you remember another place in scripture where the statement, it is finished, was made? Can somebody tell me that? At the cross, right? Well, you see that word complete that's up there? It's interesting. That word complete in the original Greek is the word teleo. Now, if you were to go into the original Greek back back into the passage of scripture where Jesus was hanging on the cross and when he's there in John chapter 19 and he makes that statement, it is finished. Can you imagine what the Greek word is that Jesus used when he made that statement? A form of the word teleo. So in other words, the same statement that Jesus made when he died on the cross for the sins of all of mankind is the same word that is used here in Revelation chapter 15 in his final judgment, the final bold judgment And God says, it's complete, teleo, it is finished. And so the time has come. Now, the time has come, you see it here again, it talks about for the wrath of God. We talked a little bit about that last week. The wrath of God is like something you don't look forward to, right? You don't look forward to the wrath. How many of you have ever, like when you were growing up, and you ever heard the statement your mom made, wait till your dad gets home? How many of you have ever heard that? Wait till your dad gets home. Now, in my house, it was different. My dad said, wait till your mom finds out. It was a different story. My mom was the enforcer. My dad was the, the, the grace giver, the mercy giver, uh, only because he like, was always having a fun time and a good time, and he didn't, you know, it's like, that. You, you, you did what? You broke a window? Ah, it's okay, nobody will know. You know, that was my dad. You know, my mom was totally different. You did what? You know, and, and then the, the price was about to be paid. And so here, understand, like the wrath of God is complete, right? That's the picture that's given here. And so it's not something that we need to look forward to. But think about this now. The time has come. And what is that time? It's interesting that immediately after we get the picture that the wrath of God is complete, that we immediately move into, wait for it, a time of worship. How does that make sense? Here's how it makes sense. Because every time God's plan, God's vision, God's heart, God's desire is fulfilled. It is always for our good and it is always something to celebrate. Now it's certainly not something to celebrate that people are going to fall under judgment, but it is something to celebrate is that God always keeps his word. So we come to a time of worship. Look what it says in verses two and following. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the lamb, saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name for You alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Now, in that first part of that verse, in verse 2, it says this, and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Can anybody else, this this is like a really tough quiz now, can anyone else tell me where else in our study of the book of Revelation, going back to the first part of June, can anybody tell me where else we saw a sea of glass? Can anybody tell me where we saw a sea of glass? I knew this was going to be a tough one. Well, I heard something right down here. Say it again. Say it louder. Okay. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Come on. Give me five. Well, you just echoed what she said. I'll give you five, too, but she's the one that had the answer. Give, hey, give her some of your points, Okay. Awesome, great, because that was a really tough quiz. Yes, in Revelation chapter four, we were in the throne room, and it says, 
Remember, John saw God sitting on the throne. Remember, he saw the 24 elders, right? He saw the, the, the Holy Spirit, and then he saw a sea of glass that was there in front. Now, understand, here we see the sea of glass, but now we see a sea of glass with fire. Can anybody tell me why the fire is introduced here, the sea of glass? No, here's why. It's because now we're at the final judgment. The wrath of God is come. And so we see this picture. And then in verse three, it says, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the lamb. Now, the song of Moses, you go back to Exodus chapter 15. And in Exodus chapter 15, let me just read this briefly and quickly. This is the song of Moses. And I want you to think about this in the context of the book of Revelation and what we're talking about, where we've been over these past few weeks. Here's what it says. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Now, this is a song that was sung thousands of years prior to John writing this passage. But as John was writing this passage, he's talking about the song that he's hearing. It's a song that goes back to Exodus chapter 15 when Israel was delivered from the, the people of Egypt and delivered at the Red Sea and God miraculously brought them across the Red Sea on dry ground. And listen again to the words. He has triumphed gloriously and the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, remember us talking a few weeks ago about a horse and a rider? Remember the first horse that came? You remember that first horse that came? Right? As we were talking about the seven seals in chapter five and six, right? And so here, going all the way back, it all ties together from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. It all ties together. Our God is triumphant. Leon Moore states it this way. With glory, there is linked his power, which is very much in place in a book so full of the might of the Lord. Now, the song of Moses we just talked about, the song of the Lamb, we're not going to go back, but if you went back to Revelation chapter 5 that we studied a few weeks back in Revelation chapter 5, we find that song of the Lamb. And remember that song is who is worthy to open the book, right? Only Jesus, the Lamb of God. And so it's a time of worship because God is glorious and God, his vision is being fulfilled and God's victory is assured. And so it starts, the time has come and it's a time of, of worship, but now it transitioned into a time of judgment. Look what it says in verse five. And after these things, after the worship, John looked and he behold, the temple of the temp tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen, having their chests girded with golden bands. And then one of the four living creatures, remember that again, going back to chapter four, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. The seven plagues of the seven bowls that we're about to unveil here in just a few moments. Now, a few moments. But here's what it says. It says that, that when the angels come forth and the, the one, four, one of the four living creatures gives them the seven golden bowls holding these seven plagues, these final seven plagues of judgment that will be cast onto the earth, 
And then it says that smoke filled the temple in heaven, smoke filled the temple, and no one could enter into the temple until the work had been done, until God's plan had been fulfilled. Now, can anyone tell me, again, this is like quiz day, can anybody tell me where else in scripture there was a passage that talks about how that the, the, the power and the glory of God was so thick like smoke that no one could even enter into the room? Can anybody tell me where that is? Um, kind of, but no. Kind of that picture. And so it goes all the way back into the Old Testament when Solomon built the first temple. And when Solomon built the first temple, he had a time of dedication. And when he had, had the time of dedication, he prayed for God's blessings on the temple. And then it says in, uh, in that passage that when that happened and when that took place in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, that it says that the, the glory of the Lord was so thick in the place, the smoke of the glory of the Lord was so thick in that place that the priests could not even do what they were supposed to do. No one could even enter. So it's the same picture here. That once again, in the book of Revelation, in the final moments, that the temple of God, that the smoke was so full of his glory that no one could enter until God's plan was ultimately fulfilled. Danny Aiken said it this way, this is an ongoing reminder of God's holiness. God's glory is always manifest during the time of his judgment. Smoke from God's glory made entering the temple impossible until his seething indignation was poured out. What a sign to the ungodly people on the earth who chose to shun the worship of a holy God and to follow the beast. Now I love that, that statement that Danny Aiken makes because it makes you think like, so in the time of the seven years of tribulation, God's word is still going to be around. People are going to have potentially copies of the Bible. And you think like, man, why wouldn't they actually sit down and read about what's going to happen? Why wouldn't they read about like, hey, I shouldn't take that whole mark of the beast thing because it's not going to work out real well for me, right? You think like, why didn't they do it? And here this picture is like, hey, what a picture that God's glory is always, always going to fill the room because God's judgment must come to fulfill God's ultimate plan. So what is this judgment? Revelation chapter 16. Let's move into chapter 16, page 56 on your, on your journal. It says this, then... John said, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Now, John says, I heard a loud voice. Can anybody tell me who the loud voice was? God. Thank you. Uh, God said, go and pour out the bowls. It is time. God says, okay, the final judgment has arrived. So let's walk into, let's get a picture here. Let's have an opportunity here for figuring out, like, why would God, a God of love, pour out the bowls of judgment on an earth? Paige Patterson said it this way. He is the creator, the sustainer, and owner of the universe. His judgment on the forces that have sought to destroy the goodness and the kindness of God as manifested in his creation is an inevitable consequence. In other words, God created the earth to be perfect and man messed it up. And Satan has been spending every moment of every day trying to destroy what God created. And for God to fix this, for God to turn it upside down, for God to upend Satan's plan, it is an inevitable consequence that God must fix what Satan has destroyed. And so that is the judgment that's to come. That's why God does this. So let's walk through these bowls of judgment. Now get your phones ready, but let me give you advice. Don't take the picture until the very end. Okay, and you'll see why in a few moments. Let's walk through these bowls of judgment, right? The angels leave heaven. 
And as the angels leave heaven, they have these bowls and they pour them out on the earth one at a time, going all the way up to the last moment until the time of Christ's return. The battle of Armageddon is finished and Satan is vanquished and Jesus reigns. The first bowl. Go back to this passage in Revelation chapter 16, verse two. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. And you can see here, the first bowl arrives. And this first bowl that is poured out is a correlation to what we read about in Exodus chapter nine when uh, the 10 plagues were sent on the people of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter nine, in fact, let me read that just to you briefly, a picture of what that looks like. In Exodus chapter nine, in um, verse 10, it says, then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh and Moses scattered them toward heaven and they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast and the magicians who worked for Pharaoh, they could not stand before Moses because of the boils for the boils were on the magicians and all of the Egyptians. Understand, this is not like a little sore that you put on a band-aid, right? You put a Band-Aid on and you're okay. This is not like a little sore that's not a big deal and you're going to be fine in a couple days. These are horrifically painful, horribly painful sores that are poured out on all of mankind. And who's it poured out on? It's poured out on those who took the mark, those who are following after the beast, the Antichrist, and following after ultimately Satan. And here the picture is given here, the same part of the first step of the last seven bowls of judgment, we go back to what was referenced in Exodus chapter nine. And once again, those sores come out on all the people of the earth. The second bowl, the second bowl, it says this in verse three, and then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became blood as of a dead man and every living creature in the sea died. This likewise is a correlation to Exodus chapter seven. And in Exodus chapter seven, let me read this in verse 20, it says, and Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and he struck the waters that were in the river, the Nile river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt here. The difference is now it was not, you know, uh, kind of localized in the place of Egypt and Pharaoh's, around Pharaoh's palace. But now it says the second angel poured out and the entire sea, all of the oceans of the earth are turned to blood. What, we, what do we know about when an ocean is turned to blood? We read about it a moment ago in Exodus chapter seven. All of the living creatures in the sea die. They all die. And when they all die, they begin to stink. Right? And so we get this picture of like this entire entirety of, of the entire globe, like all the oceans of the world are turned to blood. Charles talked about that a few weeks ago in Revelation chapter eight and the seven trumpets, but then only one third of the oceans were turned to blood. Now all of the oceans are turned to blood. And you sit back and say, well, man, I'm sure glad that we had, still had the, the lakes and the rivers and fresh water, because what would we drink if all the seas are turned to you know, we will not go and visit the oceans anymore. We're not, people are not going to Myrtle Beach in the summertime when, you know, the water is red blood and, and all the animals are, the fish are dead. Look at the third bowl. And now the waters turned to blood, verses four and following. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, you are righteous, O Lord, 
You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Now, this is an interesting correlation here. We talked about a few moments ago that during the seven trumpets, again, a third of the fresh water was turned to blood. Here now all of the fresh water, it says here, the rivers and the springs of water. So in other words, all of the fresh water on the face of the earth is now turned to blood. No animals can live. No fish can live. Humans are not going to have anything to drink. You better stock up on your Diet Coke before we get there. If you're going to be around, I won't be there. I'll be in heaven drinking Diet Coke. But if you're here, if you're here, like stock up on it because the water's gone. Like there is no water to drink. And, but here is a picture because it says in this passage, it talks about a judgment on those. It says, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you've given them blood to drink for it is their just due. Here's a quick quiz. Can anybody reference or figure out like what is he talking about here? Why is it that we're seeing this and what does it mean that they're due this justice? Well, we have to rewind back to Revelation chapter six. Remember in Revelation chapter six during the seals, and we talked about the martyrs that were seen under the altar and they were crying out to God and they actually said this, how long, oh God, are these people who are walking the earth who killed us for believing in you during the tribulation, how long will they not be punished? This is when they're punished. This is their just due. This is when God gets vengeance. It's a fulfillment of the promise that God made in Revelation chapter six. Oh, I'll take care of them. Just wait, just wait, I'll take care of them. And here we see it in verses four through seven. The next bowl, verses eight and following. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Now here, all that we understand, all we have to know is this, is that the God of the universe, all he would have to do is to adjust in a very minute level, adjust the position of the earth in relationship to the sun. Now we're here about 93 million miles away from the sun on a normal time, a normal setting, right? And as the, as the earth makes its rotation, as it continues to, to do its orbit, at certain times in January, it is uh, further away from the sun, and in July, it's closer to the sun. All God would have to do is make a, a minute little adjustment to the way that things happen, and all of a sudden, the pain and the suffering and the sorrow that comes from the extreme heat from the sun will kill people. It literally says we'll be scorched with fire. We've been reading this week and seeing stories about what's taking place in, in certain places in the United States, like Death Valley. You're reaching you know, temperatures of 120, 130 degrees. You think, how in the world can that happen? That is nothing in comparison to what we read about here that will come in these final days. But it's also not something that we should be surprised about. Because Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, in verse 25, he said this, and there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars. And on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And then we will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, those verses that I just read that Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 21, 
These are a picture of the entirety of the seven bowls of judgment that we're talking about here today. And he basically says this, is all will have to happen. There'll be signs in the sun and there'll be signs in the moon and there'll be signs in the stars. And then people will be distressed and there'll be perplexity in the sea and the waves will be roaring and men's hearts will be failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming. Jesus gave us an entire picture of the seven bowls, the final bowls of judgment right there in Luke chapter 21. Now, here we continue moving on. And even though this picture in, that we read about in verses 8 and 9, it's interesting to note that even after they know that God is the source of this judgment, and they recognize that God is the one that is pouring out judgment on the earth because of their rejection of God. And it doesn't say that they are repenting. It doesn't say they're saying, God, we're sorry. God, save us. God, we we're sorry for what we've done. No, here's what it says. And they blaspheme the name of God because they have ultimately rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And the only sin that will always, always, always send a person to hell is rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is what sends people to hell. And here, that's what these people are experiencing. We continue moving on the fifth bowl, verses 10 and 11, page 58 in your journal. It says, in the fifth angel, poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Now here is a reference, a correlation back to Exodus chapter 10. Again, going back to the, uh, the plagues that Moses brought uh, by God's power of the people of Egypt. And look what it says in Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may be even felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And here, once again, darkness visits the earth. And not like darkness, like, oh, it's a dark night. I mean like darkness that you could feel it, that you literally could not see your hand in front of your face. Darkness that was so intense that you were fearful of even leaving your home and that's exactly what takes place here. But it's interesting to see, like, where was this darkness? In Exodus chapter 10, it was only in the place of, uh, of Egypt. And in fact, the people in Egypt who were sitting there in the darkness, like right next door to them, where the camps, the encampments of all the people of Israel, they had light in their homes, but there was darkness in the land of Egypt. So where was this darkness in Revelation chapter 16? Well, let's go back to the passage, verse 10. It says, he poured out the bowl on the throne of the beast. Quick, who's the beast? Quick, the beast, Antichrist. Satan's the dragon, and the dragon's beast is Antichrist. So the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness. At this point, at the last days of the tribulation period, where is the kingdom of the Antichrist going to be? What does the kingdom encompass? This is, an, this is like a give me. This is like an extra credit at the end of the, you know, did you show up at church? That, that, that kind of question. Like at the end of the tribulation period, the Antichrist controls a kingdom. How big is that kingdom? The entirety of earth. That is the Antichrist kingdom. So where was this darkness? Well, again, he poured out the bowl on the throne of the beast and the kingdom became full of darkness. The entirety of the earth was pitched into dark, darkness. No one could see anything. 
Then we go to the sixth bowl, chapter 12, or verse 12, chapter 16. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Now, let's again figure this out. The sixth bowl that's poured out. God is bringing his judgment. God is bringing it to, to remember, completion. We read about in 15, chapter 15, verse 1, right? Teleo, bringing it to completion. So here's what he says. The sixth angel poured it out, and the great river Euphrates and its waters, they dried up. Now, the Euphrates, Euphrates River is one of the great rivers. It's a, literally, it's like the, the river that is known to separate the east from the west. It runs about 1,700 miles long. It runs through uh, Turkey and Syria and Iran and Iraq, and it runs all through that area. It runs you know, kind of in conjunction with the, the Tigris. It is the, the largest part of water that provides water to all of those people. It's in that fertile crescent where we find, where we would find the Garden of Eden. It's where God created everything to be perfect. And that's where the Euphrates River is. And it says that river, 1,700 miles long, that separates the east from the west. And I don't know if I did that right comparison to where you're sitting east. So whichever one it is, right? So, but it separates. And here, that river is dried up completely. Now, it's interesting that if you go and look at uh, scientific studies, that in 2010, the Iraq Water Ministry, which I didn't know the Iraq had a water ministry, but they do. And the Iraq Water Ministry did a study of the Euphrates River. And they found that the Euphrates River right now is half of its water has gone. The shores are, 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 are slowly kind of coming in. The water is slowly receding. It's slowly coming down. And it's starting to dry up. It tells us in the story that, that this picture that by the year 2040 that the river Euphrates would be completely dried up at its current pace. Now, of course, they're blaming it on climate change and the fact that people are driving cars and, and using hairspray and those kinds of things, right? We get that. We understand that. But it's interesting, in this article that was put out, the article actually starts, and if you're following along in the notes um, on the app, our TRBC app, I actually footnoted that article in the, the notes, and here's why. Because the article that comes from this scientific study that doesn't believe anything about the Word of God at all, they started by saying, and even though the Bible says the Euphrates River will dry up in the last days, that's really not the reason, but guess what? It's actually drying up. And they begin making all of the statements of why it's drying up, even though that thousands of years ago, God's word said, oh, by the way, that river, yeah, it's going to dry up. Why is it going to dry up? Why is it important for the Euphrates River to dry up? Exactly, because we read the passage a moment ago, and the passage tells us this. So that, as it goes on to say, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. So that the, the, the armies of the east will be able to make their way towards Israel for this final climactic battle that's coming that we'll be talking about in the days to come, in the weeks to come. It goes on to say that they saw, uh, it says they saw a dragon and they saw a beast and they saw the false prophet. This is the unholy trinity. This is hell's trinity. Remember everything that Satan does, he tries to mimic God, right? So Satan has his own trinity, right? And so the trinity is this found in verse, uh, verse 13. Um, and it says, 
I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and the mouth of the false prophet. These three unclean spirits are demonic spirits, and what are their purpose? Their purpose is to go out to the kings of the earth, verse 14, verse 14 the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle, to the great day of God Almighty. And then in verse 16, and they all come together, they gathered them together, the demonic spirits gathered them together, and where did they gather? They gathered in the place called Armageddon. This is the only place in all of scripture the word Armageddon is used. And the word Armageddon here is actually the Greek word Harmageddon or Harmageddon, which literally means Mount of Megiddo. Now there's lots of speculation about where that mount is because there's not really a mountain of Megiddo. But there is in the valley, the Jezreel Valley, a place I talked about last week that I've been many times. I'll be going there again next January. Uh, this beautiful valley. It's a fertile valley that stretches, you know, 180 some miles down through that area. Like a beautiful valley. And this valley of Megiddo, this Jezreel Valley, there in the middle is an is a, 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 a archaeological dig of a tell, which is like a, a, it's called a mountain where they build cities upon city upon city. They create their own little mount here. And there's the mount, the, the tell Megiddo, which is literally like this old uh, historical, you know, archaeological dig. And that place, you can stand on the top and look out over the valley. And you can see this incredible valley. It talks about uh, this place that they're talking about here. This picture is given that there's where this final battle will take place. I talked about it last week. I know where the McDonald's is in the valley. So if you're not with me in heaven, because the church will be raptured out before, but if you happen to still be here, I can tell you where the McDonald's is, but get there before the blood runs, okay? Make sure you get there before the blood runs. But here, the picture said, they're all gathered together at this place called Armageddon, this Jezreel Valley. J. Vernon McGee quotes uh, this book that was written called Clark's Travels, talking about this valley, this Jezreel Valley. And listen to this valley. Because it's a place where there have been battles from the very beginning of time. Battles have taken place here. Talking about the, battle of Arm- or the Valley of Armageddon, the Jezreel Valley, which has been a chosen place for encampment in every contest carried on in Palestine from the days of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Assyria, until the disastrous march of Napoleon Bonaparte from Egypt into Syria. Jews, Gentiles, Sarsians, Christian crusaders, and anti-Christian Frenchmen, Egyptians, Persians, Jews, Turks, and Arabs, warriors of every nation that is under heaven, have pitched their tents on the plain of Estralon, that's the Jezreel Valley, and have beheld the banners of their nation wet with the dews of Tabor and Hermon. Tabor and Hermon are two mountains that are there. I've been up to the top of Mount Hermon in the middle of uh, you know, a desert land. You go up there and it, there's snow. We had a snowball fight in Israel at the top of Mount Hermon. And so that's what it's talking about here. That literally going back to the beginning of time, there have been battles that have taken place in that valley. The final battle will take place in this valley. So then we come to the seventh bowl. Now you can take pictures of the screen of all the bowls. Verses 17 and following. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, it is done. Remember that? 15 verse 1 says, it will be complete. Jesus said, it is finished. Now hear the loud voice, God speaking, and he says this, it is done. We're at the final moment. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since there were men on the earth. And now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. 
And great Babylon was remembered before God. Next week, we're going to talk about Babylon in verses 17 and 18. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men. Each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Circle that in your notes. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail since that plague was exceedingly great. And here we find ourselves in the final culmination of God's plan. This is the picture where Armageddon takes place, the final battle of Armageddon, and Jesus is victorious. He returns, the second coming of Christ happens at this moment, and he comes to reign for 1,000 years on the earth, immediately following what we just read in the end of this passage in chapter 16. And it says that the earth shook. It says that uh, the, the city of Jerusalem was split into three It says that islands disappeared and mountains were moved. And then it says hailstones, the size and the weight of a talent fell on the earth. Now, in case you want to know like what that means, when you look in the scriptures and you go back in ancient measurements and you try to figure out what does a talent, like what does that mean? Hailstones, the weight and the size of a talent. Let me just tell you. So we've all seen hail, right? Some of you might've been in Texas before where they sometimes they talk about hail that comes the size of a, of a tennis ball. And sometimes the size of a softball that they'll find that hail falls in, in places like Oklahoma and Texas and, and Arkansas, other places like that. Hail the size of a talent, the weight of a talent is 100 times the size of a softball. It weighs anywhere between 75 and 130 pounds. Now, can you imagine hail of that size and of that weight falling from heaven on the entirety of the globe. Let me ask you a question. This is, again, this is one of those freebie quiz questions, extra credit. Like, you're going to get this one right. Who will survive that size hail falling on the earth? No one. And thus we come to the end. And Jesus reigns. And Satan loses. And God's plan of perfection on this earth is once again restored. So what does this give us? It gives us the bottom line. And for the bottom line, we go all the way back to Revelation chapter 15, verse 4, page 54 in your journal. Here's what it says. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. In other words, the picture is this. At the end of time, at the end of the days, at the end of judgment, at the final battle when the battle is concluded, as we talked about last week, when Satan and his forces are destroyed, The only thing that will be left is for the entirety of creation with a loud voice crying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We end where we began in a time of worship and that worship will last for eternity.
So today, what I've shared with you, and next week, again, we're going to remember, we're starting with 36 hours, 42 months earlier, right? We're going back in time. But I, I pray that today what you've picked up on is this. There is no wisdom whatsoever in running after the things of the world. That the only wisdom that exists is running after the things of God. That God is holy, that God is just. And as we ended last week, we also end this week. Some might say, how could a loving God pour out that kind of judgment on the entire earth and all those people die as a result? How could God do that, a God of love? And the answer that we can give, and the only answer we can give is this. How could a God of love not do that? Because a God of love and a holy God cannot tolerate the sin and the rejection of all things holy. And in order for God to fulfill his ultimate plan and desire of a place of perfection and a place where everything is holy, the only way that can exist is if God destroys everything that is not holy. That is the picture of a God of love. Now, the Bible tells us God does not desire to kill any of the people that are going to be on the earth during the seven years of tribulation. That is not God's desire. And I know this is true because when you go in scripture, it says that God sent his son Jesus to come and to seek and to save that which is lost. The Bible says that God is not willing that any, any, any should perish. You see, God's design and God's desire and God's prayer is that every person would come to know God through his son, Jesus Christ, to believe that Jesus died and that he rose again and only Jesus can redeem us into the hands of a loving God. That's what God's desire is. The people who find themselves in the seven years of tribulation and find themselves experiencing this terrific, horrific judgment are only the people who have rejected the desires and the callings and the efforts of a loving, patient God who desires for them to be his own. And these people have rejected and say, yeah, no, I don't want it. And my prayers for every person in this room or watching on television or listening by radio right now is that there would not be a person who hears my voice today, ultimately, who hears God's voice today, who would be part of that group. That all of us would say, no, 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 I believe and call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Let's pray. God, we thank you for loving us. God, we thank you for redeeming us through your son, Jesus. God, we thank you that what we deserve, you are going to save us from, not because of what we've done, but because of what you have done. And so God, I pray that in this moment, if there is someone here watching or listening who has never experienced that, that forgiveness and the freedom, being set free, being redeemed, by trusting and believing that Jesus is your son, that he died and that he rose again. God, if there's someone here today that has never done that, I pray that this moment would be the moment that they say, I believe. And God, for that, we give you the praise. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, today we're gonna conclude the service as we do every single week. You have never been in a service at Thomas Road Baptist Church and you never will, as long as I have anything to do with it, where we end a service without giving people the opportunity to respond to the gospel. There'd be no point in me getting up and preaching the word of God 
if I also didn't give you the opportunity of experiencing the hope that comes from the Word of God. And so today, we have a team of people gathered here at the front, men and women, who would love nothing more than to talk with you today about eternity. To talk with you today about who God is and what God desires for you. And make no mistake, I don't care what you've done, I don't care what sins you've committed, I don't care the life that you've lived, I don't even care, and hear me when I say this, I don't even care if some point in your past you've said, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. Well, some would say, wait a minute, isn't that someone rejecting Christ? Absolutely. But here's what I know about Christ and what I know about his Father, is that until the day your heart stops beating, you are never beyond the opportunity for redemption. And so if you are here today and you've never met him as your Lord and Savior, trusting in Jesus, believing that he died and that he rose again for you, when this service concludes in just a moment, this altar is going to be open and our team is going to be here and they would love to talk with you, share with you, pray with you, explain to you, answer questions for, for you, whatever it might be, to help you see God loves you and God does not want you to go through what we've talked about here today. So God, today for every person gathered here, for those watching and listening, if there is someone here that needs to meet you today, know you today, God, I pray that right now in this moment that you would give them the willingness and the courage to say, I want to know about Jesus. God, I pray that you would bring them to people in the front of this room. God, that you would speak to them in a way that only you can speak. God, that they would recognize and understand how very important this is because we don't know when that day will come. And so God, I pray that this would be their day. And with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, in a moment we're gonna close the service, but before we do, before people get up and start running for the cars and running for Waffle House and all the things that we do when we leave church. If you're here today and you want to meet Christ with no one moving, I just want you to take a bold step like right now, wherever you are, and just raise your hand. Like, yeah, I, I want to trust Christ. The Bible says that if we, in Romans chapter 10, if we believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died and that he rose again, believe in our heart, confess with our lips, Romans chapter 10 verse 13 says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so... If you're here today and that's you, in a moment, people are going to be leaving. They're going to be walking out the back doors. I want you to walk to the front because our team is here and we'd love to share with you how much our God loves you. God, do a great work in our lives, not because of us, but because of you, because you are the same God. And for that, we give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You're dismissed altar's open. God bless you. And we'll see you next week, chapter 17 and 18. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this new journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Send an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, we're here to help you. Just reach out to us and we'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. 
If you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.